You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first lecture of the Central Eurasian Studies Summer Institute, SESI. Um, this is an intensive language program that we offer here at UW-Madison each summer. So um, as part of this program, we have a weekly lecture series in English um, where each Thursday uh, at 4, we'll be hearing from a variety of area experts on a broad range of subjects, ranging from um, criminal justice in Kazakhstan to food discourse in Uzbek literature and everything in between, to name a few. But with us today is uh, Yuri Maltsev, professor of economics at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, before immigrating to the United States, Yuri was a chief consultant for the Bank of Foreign Trade and a member of a senior team of Soviet economists working on President Gorbachev's uh, reforms package. He has written, co-authored, and edited a number of books on economics and politics, including Requiem for Marx and The Tea Party Explained, um, From Crisis to Crusade. Prior to joining Carthage College, Yuri was, uh, Professor Maltsev was a peace fellow at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., where he briefed members of Congress and senior officials at the executive branch on issues of national security and foreign economic assessment. He also regularly speaks on the topic of Russian involvement in Central Asia at the Alan L. Freed Associates Public Policy Seminar for um, senior military and intelligence officials. So please join me in welcoming Professor Maltsev um, on his talk today, uh, Putin's China and Russia in Central Asia, Conflict and Cooperation. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. That was uh, one of the nicest eulogies I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I have a pretty bizarre background. I was, uh, I was uh, one of economic advisors to Mr. Gorbachev. I was not the advisor. I wouldn't take the blame. We would have time zones. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and then I defected in 1989 to the United States to find myself working for the second largest bureaucracy of this planet for the federal government in Washington, D.C. Well, working for government in Moscow and Washington, D.C. is kind of as a huge exaggeration of our activities, definitely. And, uh, and I worked for the United States Institute of Peace, which is a congressional think tank. And between us, I can assure you that we didn't do much thinking there. It was mostly tanking, and I decided to do something positive with my life, and I moved to Wisconsin, where I'm teaching young Americans sound economics, free markets, supply and demand. And the president of my college is laughing all the time, saying that it took him Moscow-trained economists to teach supply and demand. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> I, um, I remember pretty well with uh, Mr. Gorbachev and people from, because I worked also for the Soviet labor ministry, which was called um, which was called um, State Committee on Labor and Social Affairs uh, of the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union. So I traveled quite a lot in Central Asia, which was my, 
my, my area, and I was born also in Kazan, Tatarstan, so it also helped me a little bit, so I can welcome you as a salam alaikum, and, um, and uh, we're now we're, my understanding is that I am the first one to speak at this program, which, uh, which sounds like, a, like an exciting program, so I prepared kind of like a pretty introductory, pretty introductory presentation, and uh, what if I will try to make it short, and then we will go to issues and problems that you are interested in, and so kind of more on um, interactive kind of way. Um, <clears throat> I'm uh, not sure, I mean, how much do you know about Central Asia? It's an exciting, completely exciting area. Uh, Central Asia was first, the whole idea of Central Asia was at first put forward by Alexander von Humboldt. Uh, he, he didn't travel there, but he decided that this is what Central Asia is. If you will look at Central Asia, however, there are different approaches and different definitions of Central Asia. Uh, well, in, um, I will, in my presentation, I will focus mostly on a narrow definition of Central Asia, and that would be former post-Soviet republics, former post-Soviet republics. So, because, uh, because already the, the, the topic is very broad and very general already. It's Russia and China and Central Asia and Putin on the top of all this. And <clears throat> uh, so I will leave, say, Afghanistan out, as well as Mongolia, and many people would include even Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia in Central Asia. So this would be just kind of like too much to deal with. So this is the, the post-Soviet space of Central Asia, and you can see that this country is, uh, the Kazakhstan is, is, uh, is pretty big, it's number 10 surface-wise worldwide, so it's number 10 size-wise, size-wise, and Kazakhstan is pretty scarcely populated in most ways, and it has about, right now, about 20 million people only. So the, the biggest population-wise country is Uzbekistan, with 33 million people, and the other ones have six and five, say, say Kyrgyzstan, five and a half million, and uh, <coughs> uh, uh, Turkmenistan, uh, about six, six and a half. Um, population growth in all of these countries is the highest in Asia except Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan, there's no much of population increase. However, in, uh, in these other stands, the population is growing faster than almost anywhere else. So these are the numbers. The, the, uh, and um, that area was all the time the center of of uh, great, I would say, um, uh, adversarial policies by two empires, by the Russian Empire, by the British Empire. British Empire, they were trying to get into, into uh, Central Asia um, from Afghanistan, from northwestern border of India, um, and uh, they had some extremely I think extremely interesting people, like, uh, for example, Wilfred uh, Molston, who uh, was a 
commander of the British forces, and he really spent a lot of time studying culture and languages of the people of Central Asia. What kind of people? Well, at that time there were no Uzbeks, no Kyrgyz, uh, no Kazakhs. They were all called <coughs> Turkmens, Turkmens, and they used uh, the uh, uh, the language which was more or less Turkish. I mean, not more or less, it's just Turkish language. And uh, <coughs> and Russians were moving um, uh, west, uh, eastward, also. Um, and especially with the completion of the, of the uh, railroad, um, um, Moscow Vladivostok, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, uh, then the um, Russian presence in Central Asia became um, really, um, really very well felt. Because before that, say, first Russian uh, geographers and travelers, they were in, the, in this area since 1856, for example. If you remember Przewalski and many other people like that. Uh, Admiral Kolchak, uh, he, was a, uh, he was a famous geographer and um, uh, wrote several books. and. He also visited uh, Central Asia. So there were a lot of um, academic interest. And I was pretty lucky because I was born and lived in Kazan, uh, that Kazan University under Tsars uh, was the home of something called uh, Imperial uh, Oriental Institute. So all um, most Russian studies of Central Asia were, were uh, housed by the uh, uh, by the Imperial University of Kazan, which still has a fantastic library, fantastic library, because, uh, because uh, <coughs> Bolsheviks, for some reason, didn't throw these things out, didn't throw these things out. So then, um, then uh, <laughs> they, Central uh, <laughs> Asia is kind of, uh, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> just to make it a little bit less depressing. <laughs> yeah. So then what happened? That Stalin is, 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 is nice as he looked in, in uh, 1915. He hated Central Asia. He hated Muslim people. And he unleashed a real genocide against Central Asia. And in Central Asia, uh, they were kind of, they're not only killing Muslims, they were kind of equal opportunity murderers and uh, killed um, uh, most Russian intellectuals who lived in Central Asia as well. Uh, the natural elites of all these countries were kind of uh, exterminated first, exterminated first. In some cases, that was this genocide. Well, some people would say that you, it's inappropriate to call it genocide, it's just mass murder or whatnot. Um, but the highest rate of mass murder was in Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan, out of four million of Kazakhs at that time, one million uh, ran away into China and British India or whatever they could. Uh, many of them died on the way, and another million was just exterminated. Because uh, Kazakhstan was considered by Stalin as a kind of human dump, uh, because it was pretty far, pretty far. Um, then um, uh, he and the government in Moscow didn't care much about about the people there, and uh, <clears throat> and so it was um, the place of exile for um, many millions of people, 
like Chechens, like Kabardians, Balkars, Germans, um, Tatars, both Kazan Tatars and Tatars from Crimea. Um, and by the way, I, I travel quite a lot to Turkey, and and they believe, and maybe rightly so, and because I have colleagues there who are also economists and historians, uh, they believe that actually Crimean Tatars are not Tatars, they're Turks. They're Turks, and they were named Tatars just because the, the, uh, under the Russian Empire, they thought that the presence of foreigners, of foreigners uh, is not much welcome, and because there are a lot of Tatars living already in the Russian Empire. So they kind of they made them Tatars as well. And, um, and that was mostly they renamed them Tatars under Nicholas I. And Nicholas I was the most, I would say, maybe awful Tsar in history uh, of, of, of Russia. Him. Um, <coughs> Uh, he baptized, for example, he baptized a lot of uh, Tatars, a lot of Uzbeks, Kalmyks, especially Karakalpaks, uh, in a forced way, in a forced way. People would be thrown in the ponds or lakes or rivers, and then they would put a table, and the army clerk will baptize everybody into Christian faith, into Christian faith. And that's why when you travel, you will see, for example, um, uh, a, a village called Garelovka and everybody in the village would be Garelov or Garelova. Uh, and, and why Garelov or Garelova? Because the clerk's name was Garelov. And so some kind of like a vanity of, of these people. So these people are called, in Russia called Vikristi, Vikristi, they are people who were baptized. And that's, uh, <clears throat> and they're kind of tragic in the sense that, that people don't like them. I would say mostly kind of like both sides. So Stalin here, Stalin murdered. Uh, overall, that's not many people understand um, this, especially none of my students have heard of this, uh, that um, uh, during the Soviet Union, anywhere from 43 to 61 million people were killed, were killed. And including a lot of people in the national republics, in the national republics. There's an interesting movie um, about Ukrainian Holodomor, if you haven't seen it, it's called The Soviet Story. The Soviet Story it was done, produced in, a, produced in the Soviet Republic of Latvia, because when, when um, Soviets were running away from Latvia, uh, they forgot to take or to destroy the KGB archives. So there's a lot of archival materials. I'm also working in the Library of Congress. Uh, there is a, a former Soviet and Russian general, uh, Dmitry Volkogonov, and he left, he left a huge archive, he left a huge, with a lot of materials also about Central Asia, about Central Asia. Dmitry Volkogonov, it's just kind of like uh, interesting for those who are studying professionally Central Asia, it's a, it's a, a treasure, treasure of materials, it's enough materials for 10,000 of PhDs, I think. And Mr. Volkogonov is a very interesting person himself. When I lived in Soviet Union, I would see him on TV, I would switch the TV right away. Because he was the most, I would say, the most stupid and arrogant propaganda person. And I never could imagine that the same person, uh, he was director of the Soviet Institute of Military History. 
that he was making highly illegal copies of everything going through his desk. And he accumulated 46, 46 huge boxes of this. And so when Soviet Union collapsed, he bought, a, he bought in, in Austria, he bought a Xerox machine in 1980. And, um, and so it's just an absolutely amazing amount of, of this, uh, of this uh, secret um, materials starting from Lenin and Stalin up to Gorbachev and Yeltsin. <coughs> when the Soviet Union collapsed, he uh, immediately kind of revealed his real colors because he wrote um, also very interesting and very well written biographies of Stalin, of Trotsky, and Lenin. Uh, so that's, that's when the Soviet Union collapsed in the glorious day of 24th of December of 1991. Uh, immediately, almost a week later, all these books were published. And he became, he became national security advisor to Mr. Yeltsin. To Mr. Yeltsin. Um, I also worked, <coughs> you can call it work again, with Mr. Yeltsin. And he was a uh, he was pretty interesting person uh, in between in between imbibing uh, <laughs> <laughs> himself. <laughs> we call him governing under influence. <laughs> so, um, uh, but the good thing about that about Mr. Yeltsin definitely that he was anti-communist. If you will read his 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 uh, um, his lectures and and speeches, you will think it's Pat Buchanan or something like that. And uh, <coughs> what, uh, uh, however, Mr. Yeltsin did, he appointed Mr. Volkogonov as a national security advisor, and appointed him as national security advisor, and Mr. Volkogonov approached U.S. ambassador in Moscow, asking him to move all these archives, these great materials, to to Library of Congress. And, our ambassador, he advised him to contact uh, contact the agency, that means the CIA, and Mr. Mr. Volkogonov, he said, no agency, uh, it should be only Library of Congress. And if the agency wants to read it, uh, they can get a reader's card and read it. Uh, I don't know if they did that, but I did. I got the reader's card, and I am, <coughs> and I am working quite a lot there, almost uh, doing the seminars in Washington during the year, sometimes once a week, and so spent a lot of time. It's very interesting for, for about everything. Uh, Lenin's uh, handwritten materials, for example, about Basmachi, uh, because that's how they called uh, Muslims, um, uh, all faithful Muslims. And, um, <coughs> and he, received a, he received a letter from one of them of uh, Soviet officials there in Central Asia, near Dushanbe. And this official is writing, Dear Comrade Lenin, Dear Comrade Lenin, you told us to fight religion, but you didn't explain how. And Lenin is writing back, Dear Comrade Imbecile, kill religious people, that's how. And kill them the way that everybody would tremble with fear 150 miles around. So that's what they, they did quite a lot. Why they kill uh, why every, everywhere they go, in all socialist countries, mass murder, uh, because from economics point of view, there's absolutely no incentives to do anything under socialism. If you have predetermined results, then nobody works. So how to make people do something what the great leaders want 
Uh, that's the only way is force, crude force, threat of death. And <coughs> then uh, uh, this work, this so-called basmachi, that people of faith, they, um, they call themselves mojahedi, um, like mojahedins, uh, and they, uh, they were fighting, they were fighting um, the uh, uh, Bolsheviks invasion fiercely, but, uh, but it, uh, it's very difficult for, for uh, a very, I would say at that time, a very backward part of, of the Soviet Union to fight the, to fight the, the great kind of evil, evil empire. Then what they were doing, they were removing hijabs forcefully by force from people. They were destroying mosques. Uh, they, were, um, they were murdering imams, um, uh, sometimes in the most atrocious way. Um, that's the, the kind of what, what, was, um, what was happening. Uh, so today we have, uh, <coughs> if you will look what is that Central Asia, like all parts of former Soviet Union, when they became independent in 1991, all of them adopted constitutions in which they limited the terms which their presidents can serve. Can serve. Uh, sure enough, uh, um, uh, the longest would be six years in, in um, Tajikistan. Um, immediately after, however, seven Seven presidents in the former Soviet Union became presidents for life, for life. So it kind of bounced back, I would say, to to the times in memorial and became something which is called Eastern Despotism. So that's the the. These are two of these president presidents. Are These are two presidents for life, Shafkat Mirziyoyev of Uzbekistan and Garmangulay uh, Berdy Muhammadov. Okay. Actually, Russians and technology do not go well together. That's the number one. So, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, that was, I was, when I, I, I was not visiting much with Mr. Gorbachev, but, but I remember they adopted a, program to build a car with automatic transmission, and they couldn't. It was easy to send people to space. <laughs> <laughs> writing, writing a book about my bizarre experiences with uh, Kremlin. And there was just some, because, because um, if I die, nobody would probably know it, but I was um, the first time when I thought that this perestroika would fail, and I need to pack and, and, uh, and defect. Um, I don't like the word defect, it's kind of like defective or defecating or whatever. <laughs> it's a defect means you give up something to it. I remember Mr. Gorbachev, for example, he would say to us economists, he would say, comrades, um, comrades, uh, th this is wrong to think that central planning is not working. The problem is that we never had a good plan. And when you hear something like that, then you definitely think, is there anything behind that birthmark? Uh, so, and by Gene Becker, uh, he's a president of 
Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan was a country which was which was um, uh, cooperating with the United States more than others. Uh, if you remember, maybe we had a military base near Bishkek with 394th U.S. Air Force Air Wing over there because that's one of the problems. That's major concern of the United States, I think, because we don't have United States in the title of today's today's presentation. But the United States mostly concerned is how to ship stuff to and from Afghanistan because because Afghanistan is not only landlocked; it's also locked by by people who don't like United States, who don't like United States. So, that's uh, why they cannot ship anything, say, from through Iran. Or now, our president, I think, he, he kind of <coughs> um, was criticizing severely uh, Pakistan. So Pakistan is probably not also a good partner for us. Uh, so, so run by Jean Beckov. From economics point of view, he is one of the smartest there, as well as uh, uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Uh, this, uh, this two. Uh, this is uh, Ms. Oyev, the president of Uzbekistan. Uh, this is Mr. Putin, just some kind of pictures. And, um, and uh, why this area is so important, why people are uh, doing like what you do, study languages and culture and economy and history of this country is because this is really a crossroad, crossroads of Eurasia, crossroads of Eurasia. So, you can see that there is a. I mean, right now they're toying again with the same, with the same, um, with the same name, the Silky Way. Uh, but this is really, you can see, really uh, important. Say from Shanghai, for example, or from China, from anywhere in China, you can get to Europe, to to Europe and to Scandinavia. Um, is it practical at this point? Not. It's about four, four and a half times cheaper to do it by sea through with containers rather than to send them by by rail. But by rail, and another problem by rail, why it's so expensive? Because Chinese they sell a lot in Europe. However, they don't buy anything in Europe. So this um, or almost nothing. So. So this, uh, this railroad cars are going empty on the, uh, when they're returning back to, returning back to China. Then uh, southern linkages, that's what is very important for the United States, uh, because United States, uh, we have military kind of strategy is and military doctrine that major threats for us would be People's Republic of China in the Russian Federation, in the Russian Federation. And so um, Central Asia definitely, it's in between these two. Uh, it's uh, um, the, uh, both Chinese and Russians, they have a lot of very important economic and political and military interests in that region. And, um, and, uh, um, and all of them are involved in something called SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Which, uh, which was formed in 1995. And this organization is not only, we will talk a little bit more about it, um, that it is not only organization of economic cooperation or development, but it is also organization which is based on military cooperation, on military games, on, 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 the, on the joint, 
joint military games. Uh, so this is uh, kind of very important for the United States. And I can assure you that if you will go to, say, to Department of State or, or uh, to executive branch, um, then uh, a lot of interest to, to Central Asia, a lot of uh, importance being attached to that. I have two of my students, two of my former students, my former students, they, they are now working in the White House, in the White House, in very senior kind of positions, yes, and, and they, um, they all the time just talking about, about Russia, Central Asia, but not, that's that. Uh, yes, yeah, so this was a center in Manas, uh, which existed for uh, 13 years in Kazakhstan. It's a pretty bleak life. I met many people who worked there. Yeah, they were so happy to get out. So that's them. Uh, that's obvious. Then also Central Asia is uh, because it's it's not um, it doesn't have any stake, for example, in um, in opposing say Iran or opposing Saudi Arabia. They try to be very good friends with both, with both. And that's why the leaders of, for example, the leaders of Central Asia, when President Trump went to Saudi Arabia, if you maybe remember 2017, then all of them also went to Saudi Arabia. And many of them stayed a little bit longer, not just to meet the president, but to meet the royal family members and other big players of, um, of Saudis, of Saudis. Last August, I was in Qatar, and then in Dubai, and uh, and I was amazed uh, the amount of um, people from Central Asia in both of these places. In both of these places, many are working, many are visiting, some just coming to shop. So that's the, the uh, uh, is telling us that that this uh, that this region is is uh, getting more and more global, more and more. Uh, more and more involved into international interactions. Uh, so this is uh, President of Uzbekistan and Ayatollah. You can see this is uh, President of uh, Turkmenistan with our first family. So who is doing how? Central Asian numbers. Then um, in the United States, gross domestic product per person is $58,000. Uh, poorest part uh, of Central Asia uh, would be uh, Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, uh, and then uh, comes Uzbekistan, uh, and the most prosperous is uh, Kazakhstan, mostly because of natural resources, and I would say also human development, because in Kazakhstan, uh, in Kazakhstan, educational system is better in Kazakhstan than, and I mean, I'm not saying it's it's good. I'm saying it's better. Yeah. So that's then. then. Uh, so that then then say in in the places like Tajikistan, where they mostly are studying Turkmenbashi and all kind of other things like that. Uh, so. <coughs> Then uh, Islam is definitely a dominant religion in these countries, however, not in Kazakhstan again. Kazakhstan is a, 
is a mixture of everybody because again it was used as a human dumpster. It was a lot of Russians, Ukrainians, everybody else were moved to Kazakhstan during the, the Second World War because that's where the people were being evacuated. If they would be, they would be on. Uh, uh, in the places which uh, supposedly would be occupied by Germans. Um, so a lot of industry was evacuated to Kazakhstan and many of that stayed there for a long, for quite a long time. So um, uh, these nations and borders were kind of artificial in these countries. Uh, they were all set by Stalin. By Stalin he had some other ideas about it. And uh, his major ideas would be to uh, to mix people, because if you will look at what Marxism-Leninism was all about, it was about to create in Soviet Union, about to create a kind of homogeneous blob, Soviet people, instead of Kazakhs, instead of Uzbeks, instead of Lithuanians, Estonians, Ukrainians, to have the Soviet people, so who would be completely kind of ruthless people, uh, would, be, uh, would be just robots for the government, um, and that, that's, that's why we have all these issues, for example, Nagorno-Karabakh and, uh, and um, uh, demarcation of borders, say, between Latvian and Russian Federation, and Estonia and Russian Federation. And so these are all major kind of problems. So local elites. Local elites, they thrust into independence, like all local elites. I think that this uh, um, uh, independence movement, I'm, maybe pretty skeptical in many cases, is that in many cases uh, independence movement is not, is not to be, to have a cultural sovereignty and to rule out rulers from afar. But in many cases that local elites just do not want to share with people somewhere else. The people say in Moscow, London, or, or wherever else. Yes, I think that was a, a <coughs> also kind of, um, not yet writing, but looking in the materials of, of our revolution of 1776. That's uh, it's a, lot of, a lot of the same, the same types of things were going up there. So, uh, so transition uh, theory, transition, how did they transit? Well, how to transit very easy. You should just, because what is socialism? Socialism is abolition of private property. That's according to Karl Marx. Abolition of private property. Now, that's why when people are saying that Denmark or Finland or somebody else is socialist, this is nonsense. There's no, uh, they're not uh, socialists because they are based on private property. Um, uh, transition theory is very simple. If you go that way, you should get back through privatization, through recreating the private property. It's a very difficult, a very difficult process. Lech Walesa, first president of Free Poland, uh, he used to say that it's easy to make fish soup out of aquarium, but it's very difficult to to make aquarium out of the fish soup. So because uh, many people already destroyed, that's the worst thing of of the socialist dictatorships of the 20th century that they destroyed character of people, they destroyed initiative, they destroyed normal human relations, so because of that, um, that was pretty difficult. And what happened, especially in Central Asia, was uh, corruption was pervasive, and um, people were just taking their private 
property. What's the period called? Spontaneous privatization, which you can translate into plain English as theft. As theft. People will just say, can you imagine, you wake up and everything around you does not belong to anyone. Uh, that was quite a, quite, a, quite a challenge, quite a challenge. So what are the resources there? Well, well, cotton, gold, uranium, this is something which is, um, uh, which are natural resources. All of these countries, however, in, in uh, political economy, we have a term, curse of natural resources. Curse of natural resources, if you will look at the map of the world, you would see that countries endowed with a lot of natural resources are doing, on the average, they are much less successful than countries which do not have natural resources. And some people are saying that, well, how you can explain that United States with a lot of natural resources, or Canada, or Australia, um, are doing very well, while the, the countries like Kazakhstan, or like, uh, say, Ukraine, or Russia, they are not doing well, or uh, we'll look further on, Venezuela, Angola, Nigeria, uh, why these countries are not doing well? And the answer is, is, is very simple, because in the United States, or Australia, or other countries like that, natural resources are owned by people. They're not owned by governments. And when natural resources are owned by governments, then what happens? Then people are, are completely kind of uh, uh, disposable. Uh, because, uh, say, in the United States, nobody would kill a, a goose laying golden eggs, right? But if, say, if you are in Kazakhstan, you can eat the goose and the egg and get what you need from gas, from oil, from other things. Yeah, so, so this, uh, uh, the government, when government is not, I'm, I'm pretty free market person, I don't like taxes, but taxes is also a kind of, a, 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 it, it is a feedback between the government and people. So that means that if there is no feedback, then again, then you have tens of millions of people killed or, or uh, natural resources stolen or whatnot. You remember, maybe there was the video was uh, blood diamonds, right, blood diamonds, and um, many other kind of uh, examples of that. And then usually that kleptocrats come to power and kleptocrats in most cases, and I'm not even saying that the, the presidents, this, uh, some of them are pretty, are pretty at least uh, eccentric people, um, um, but so this is uh, the cabinet of um, Birde Muhammadov, the president of Turkmenistan, and uh, they all uh, riding bicycles, uh, for example. He's pretty eccentric. He was a dentist, like. Uh, like who, was, who is also a dentist, famous dentist, is uh, Bashar Assad. Bashar Assad, he is a dentist also. <laughs> and um, and um, Gurban Gulay Birni Muhammadov is also a dentist. And uh, he has, uh, and he wrote uh, some books about fitness. And people, in, um, uh, people sh are supposed to read these books and pass tests on these books. And uh, recently he also issued a, a pretty interesting law that if your car 
is not white or silver, you should immediately repaint it. Otherwise, the car would be towed away and you won't see it uh, at any time soon. So, um, uh, but he mostly promotes um, fitness and uh, that's all his, all his uh, members of, of government are on, on uh, bicycles. Then, uh, um, Russia and, and um, uh, Central Asia. Russia does not have really serious economic interests in Central Asia. And the reason is that I think many people in the United States overstate the strength of Russian economy and the its efficiency and whatnot. If you will look, Russia GDP is 118th of the US GDP, 118th. Uh, so in most cases, if you go to Russia and you drive out of Moscow, then 30 miles away, you are driving straight in the 19th century, the 19th century. So, so the problems are that Russia, Russian leadership, they need tensions. They need to keep this, to keep uh, um, uh, the, the kind of the people, especially in the near abroad, uh, all the time on the edge. And, um, and so that's the policy. Uh, more or less in Central Asia, because um, Russia is the only country which has troops in Central Asia, and they have troops in Tajikistan and um, Turkmenistan. And, and so they, uh, these troops are mostly working on a border, on the border, and um, um, so because mostly of the problems with Afghanistan, with Afghanistan. Our president is, uh, trying, I think, to get us out of Afghanistan. We'll see what will happen, but uh, definitely, amazingly enough, now both China and Russia don't want us to withdraw from Afghanistan, because then, then it will be kind of the, something of their own making, and they would need to, to, to be involved and to do something, because both China, you know, that China and Russia, they are very much afraid of radical um, Islamists. That's the, if you look at Xinjiang uh, and um, the Uyghurs living in the southern Xinjiang, uh, they, many of them, they radicalized because of this ongoing oppression from Beijing and all the time, uh, all the time they're putting so many Han Chinese into Xinjiang, so, uh, so Uyghurs already became a minority in their own country. And, um, uh, so the Chinese uh, leadership is very much afraid of, of Islamic terrorism. And the same goes with Mr. Putin, with Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin, he is trying to please Russian Muslims as, as much as possible. If you will uh, look at, uh, say, Russian news, he all the time is taking pictures with a mufti of all Russia, the leader of Russian Muslims, uh, who usually sits on his right hand, you know, not on the left hand. And uh, 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 because I came from I came from Kazan, uh, which is a, which is the capital of Tatarstan, and amazingly enough, if, um, uh, that in 1912, so in 1912, uh, before the revolution, in Kazan they had 182 mosques, 182 mosques. When the when the Soviets came in. Uh, all of them were raised, except one. They only had one mosque. 
And I was all the time, I was very interested in getting into the mosque. And I never could, because there would be these hooligans, the young Komsomol League people, who would, um, uh, who would throw me out. Because only, only very old people could go to, because they're considered to be beyond repair. So they could go. Yes, now there's 324 mosques in Kazan. It's amazing. A lot of uh, people that I knew uh, became very religious, and, uh, and they uh, visit Saudi Arabia, Hajj, and whatnot. So, uh, that's, uh, that's a very interesting. These press conferences, they even couldn't talk about anything except all questions were about Stormy Daniels and stuff. <laughs> so what they're trying to do right now, they're trying to establish national identity, that's one thing. Because with Kazakhstan, it is, uh, it is very difficult because Kazakhstan is uh, only about now 60% Kazakhs. Yeah. When in 1959, it was only 37% Kazakhs. Now it is uh, because Kazakhs, they have the high fertility. So they, they have 60%, but 40% are others, mostly Russians and, and Ukrainians. Uh, everybody else fled because, for example, um, in, um, before the 1991, uh, about 3 million Germans, ethnic Germans, lived in Central Asia. Uh, and um, uh, then immediately just fled all to Germany. Uh, to Germany and everybody else who could, uh, they went back. Uh, the same with the uh, Crimean Tatars, with the Chechens, Kabardians, Balkars, and uh, Turks and Greeks also. Many people don't know this, uh, this devilish, I would say, history of moving of people in and out of Central Asia. The Koreans, for example. Mm -hmm. Koreans, so that, was a, that was a genocide. 40% mortality rate just through the move, just through the move. Uh, if you will look, uh, um, I wrote a book together with, uh, with Ruslan Hasbulatov. I don't know if you remember him. Ruslan Hasbulatov, he was a speaker of Russian parliament. That Russian parliament, which was uh, raided by Yeltsin in 1993. And Ruslan is ethnic Chechen, and he was in this, in, he was a, a kid, uh, he was in one of these uh, cattle cars when Chechens were deported to Kazakhstan. And he was traveling, can you imagine, nine years old, was traveling, pressed around by corpses, by corpses. And they would not, uh, especially in the cars where some people would be vocal and, and would be protesting against it, they wouldn't even open them. They wouldn't even provide water or any, or any sanitation. So, this uh, kind of the, the legacy of the, of the Soviet Union. Another one, which not many people know, was a cultural genocide. In 1929, Stalin ordered that all languages of so-called Natsmens, Natsmene, uh, that means that national, uh, national minorities, that all languages should be switched to Cyrillic alphabet, to Cyrillic alphabet. And some people would say, so what? I mean, this alphabet or another alphabet. But can you imagine that what you do by doing that? You're wiping out all written history, all written heritage of this country's right away. 
Only old people would remember how to read Quran in Arabic, but the new ones would not. The new ones would not be able even to find the headstones on the cemeteries of their own, uh, of their own uh, ancestors. So, so this was how it was done. Uh, then in Kazakhstan, however, in 1929, for some reason, um, Kazakhstan was spared. They had Latin alphabet, which was turned into Cyrillic only in 1940. 1940. Now Nazarbayev wants to return back to Latin alphabet, Latin alphabet as a part of, of some kind of modernization of, of, the, of the country, modernization of the country. Well, definitely it's a, it's a kind of um, also to show Mr. Putin that, that uh, Kazakhstan is more, is more independent than Mr. Putin wants it to be. Uh, because Mr. Putin, if you will look, he surrounded himself with, a, with kind of like neo-fascists, uh, like Mr. Zhirinovsky, for example. And Mr. Zhirinovsky, uh, he is, um, when he is on Russian TV, I'm watching Russian TV all the time, it's kind of my occupational hazard, and, um, and Mr. Zhirinovsky uh, all the time is demanding to restore Russian Empire in the borders of 1850. 1850. Many people don't understand what does this mean, 1850. 1850 means Alaska back, Finland back, Poland back, all Central Asia back, everything back. Yeah. So then Mr. Putin, on that kind of background, he looks sober and he looks reasonable and what not because he is a, um, and, but I think that Mr. Jelinovsky, uh, he would never say anything which is not pre-approved by Mr. Putin, by Mr. Putin. So this is a, it's kind of like the games and <coughs> so then, uh, uh, that's the, they put themselves on vodka even. This is uh, all some kind of like uh, Sovietized Muslims. Yeah. I think uh, this, uh, this was a golden golden monument to Niyazov. Niyazov was considered to be the, the uh, Turkmen Bashi of the whole world. And this uh, is rotating, actually. The, the, uh, this monument is rotating, made of, of gold. I mean, not solidly gold, but 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 quite. A, um, and and so rightly so, um, this um, new president decided to remove him, remove him, uh, to remove him. Uh, but why? Because he wants himself to be there, himself to be. His uh, uh, another monument of Niyazov was even funnier. He put uh, he put. Uh, Monument to his mother, to his mother, and um, and every morning he would, wave, and she was like in a waving position. So, so he would say hi, hi mom. Yeah. So this Verdim uh, Mohammed, happy. So we can. Um, there is a lot of institutions there, Central Asia. It's so diverse and it's so sophisticated that you really need to, to, to go very much in depth. For example, institutions, so many institutions. Uh, this is a Eurasian Council, that's the Economic Council, which is, uh, which is the one actually 
uh, because of which Ukraine was attacked, if you remember, that, uh, that was either European Union or, or uh, Eurasian Council. And Eurasian Council, it's seven countries today, and, uh, and that would be Central Asian countries plus Belarus, plus Belarus. So, um, then uh, um, I have a lot of, I have my sleeping cell in Moscow, and I have like maybe about a thousand Russians on my Facebook page, and, uh, uh, and I talk on the phone, and they, they have this um, nice joke, so they could, you know that because of sanctions, because of sanctions, so can go to the store and they would say, would you like shrimp from Belarus or uh, Turkmenistan? And that's the, uh, well, the funny thing is that well, there's no shrimp in both places, right? <laughs> so that would be smuggling things through. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons that, that uh, Eurasian Council is kind of, was stillborn stillborn in the sense that, that who would like to be part of, the, of, the, of, of this block, trading block, if the major player in the trading block is ostracized by the community of nations. That if, they, if uh, there are sanctions, and uh, some of them pretty biting sanctions against Russia, then if you are in this block, then, then uh, kind of uh, uh, it's not very beneficial, not very beneficial. So, so Russia is, uh, is unfortunately, it's, uh, it's kind of not, not doing well. I remember Mr. Yeltsin, when he was, uh, it was uh, New Year's Eve, yeah, and he was on TV, and already looks like he celebrated New Year, and, uh, and he was literally, there were tears there, and he said, dear Russians, dear brothers and sisters, I want to make Russia better. I want to make your life happier. And then he did like that, he said, but it turned out as usual. And so at least he had some, some sense of, of humor. Uh, so this, this is kind of the, the, the pipelines, it's a lot, of, a lot of things which are very, uh, very uh, important, I think, um, to talk about definitely, um, definitely the, the war in Afghanistan is, is extremely, extremely uh, bothersome for Central Asians. Uh, Central Asian, um, not, it's amazing, but there's not so many terrorist acts in Central Asia. I think the last was 2004, big act. Now in, you know that uh, in, in Moscow, yes, the, they have in Moscow this, uh, uh, he's from Kyrgyzstan, Taxi cab driver who didn't who was working for 26 hours in a row with no with no break, that he uh, he mowed what eight people, including three Mexican people in in Moscow. And at first there were the people were planning to the people in FSB were planning to make him a scapegoat to present him as a Islamic terrorist. Islamic terrorist. Well, fortunately, it looks like. It wouldn't work, but um, but definitely it creates uh, more xenophobia in in Russia. In Russia, was uh, just the, the xenophobia is uh, misogynism, everything. Yeah, that's the the, what the people. Uh, many people are really like that. Yeah, um, economics. Yeah, this is a 
this Turkmen Bashi on the grave. But the money, look, the money is going down and down and down. This manat, moneta in Russian, manat is going down. This, uh, uh, we have uh, pretty high inflation in many countries, in some countries. Uh, I think uh, Kazakhstan only is doing more or less. Okay, however, Kazakhstan, Tenge, Dengi, a lot of Russian words were borrowed from uh, Tatars and Mongols who came in, uh, in, in to Russia in the 12th century. So um, you can see that it's going up a little bit, but it is what, one third of a cent. And when they just began to, to emit this, uh, this Tenge in 1992, then Tenge was on the par with the US dollar. So, so you can see how this losing, losing. Um, so this is the, uh, however, having said that Kazakhstan is, also if you'll put it in perspective, they're, what they are looking for, they're looking towards Beijing, looking towards China. A lot of money there, a lot of free money. Chinese do not care about human rights or whatever else. Uh, the same thing like in Africa or whatever, uh, they are providing assistance. This assistance, in most cases, uh, Chinese are trying to present it, and I think in some cases it is really so. It's unattached. Unattached, that means you don't need to do something for, for example, for in your road or for something else. Uh, you need to repay it at a certain point, but credits are pretty cheap and Available. They believe that China would invest about one trillion dollars until 20, uh, 2050. 2050 uh, this is what resources definitely. So they're building, uh, building many, many uh, this is, if anyone is interested in details, then uh, you can just email me, I'll send you this presentation instead of taking notes or whatever else. So this are the, okay, so these are the, the major problems, yes, and um, <coughs> these are also countries which were destroyed, destroyed by, by, Central planning destroyed by, by uh, destruction of private property, destroyed by destruction of the people. And, and a great Austrian economist, Hayek, Nobel laureate, uh, he used to say, is there a greater tragedy imaginable than that in our endeavor consciously to shape our future in accordance with high ideals? We should, in fact, unwittingly produce the very opposite of what we have been striving. That's, uh, this is the book I strongly advise everybody to, to read. And I'm very proud that this book was almost forgotten, but I was invited to, to speak on TV about this book. Well, I kind of was told them that I wanted. And this book, um, this book was reprinted 350,000 copies, copies. And the um, uh, manager of uh, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, he called me and he said, what did you do yesterday on TV? Uh, I said, what? He said, uh, uh, we ordered 350,000 more copies. And I said, where you would get so many? He said, well, like everything else from China. Yeah, so that's, uh, <coughs> that's another hike.
the true Hayek. So um, I think that what if we will, uh, it's time for me to, like, to take questions if you have any questions. I depressed you. <laughs>